Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Simone Collins. She's the founder, with her husband Malcolm, of the advocacy organisation Pronatalist.org and the co-author, most recently, of a series of books, including The Pragmatist's Guide to Crafting Religion. We spoke about why progressives really ought to care about birth rates, why a hard landing from demographic collapse could look really ugly, and why the nuclear family is not the future. As always, you can also find Men Mother Matriarch on Substack at louiseperry.substack.com, where you can find uh, an extended version of this episode, where we go into a lot more detail about exactly what Simone and Malcolm's family setup looks like. Uh, you can find bonus episodes, the MMM chat community, and much more. Thank you so much. Enjoy. All right, Simone, imagine for a moment that I am um, a progressive who is constantly surrounded by messaging that having children is bad for the planet, uh, a, a, a lifestyle choice among many, that there's nothing to worry about with plummeting birth rates in my country and elsewhere. What What's your... What's your pitch to me? How do you summarise the case for why actually birth rates is something that we should be worried about, particularly if one has progressive politics? Sure. So I would say if you care about progressive politics and progressive views, then you should probably care about birth rates. If you care about seeing those views represented in the future, because as much as you feel like progressive culture is very good at getting you adherence because it is true or the right way, um, in the end there is a heritable component of your political affiliation. And if you keep picking off every open-minded person from other cultures, let's say really conservative cultures, really religious cultures, and converting them to your culture, and then they don't have kids, then you're going to end up with only very, very close-minded people in those other cultures who you will no longer be able to convert to progressive values. Meaning that if you care about people existing in the future who care about the environment, if you care about long-term stable populations instead of just endlessly growing populations, you should probably care about preserving progressive culture through birth rates because conversion is not the only way to go. I've read you using the example of... Um... Is it rhinos or elephants? Uh, <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. That if you if you overhunt all of the more friendly and big, big tusked or small tusked uh, elephants, rhinos, whatever you want to you know choose horns for rhinos, then you're going to end up with only more aggressive and short tusked elephants slash rhinos. So in other words, this is something I think we can all intuitively understand in terms of the selective pressures that you could put on a species by eliminating it from the gene pool in some way. I think it it's it feels scary or kind of wrong to associate that with humans because, you know, that kind of implies, and this is a very non-progressive stance, that there isn't a blank slate, that we are born with differences. And some of those differences can be psychographic in, in how our behavior, in our prosociality. And, and it's it's it feels very wrong to admit that. And I say that because I grew up in very progressive culture. I I 
understand this mindset and I had this mindset as, for... as did I I think we're coming from yeah. the same sort of cultural background yeah yes you feel that intuition but you're also like mm, yeah but you have to think through mm -hmm. if you think through to the conclusion you discover oh my gosh this is actually very different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes so um uh 101 I think you and I are both very aware of this but not everyone is um there is large variation in fertility rates across different subgroups within America and Britain. And people with progressive politics tend to have many fewer children. Do we, can you recall the numbers roughly, what sort of differences we're looking at across different groups? Oh, yeah, that's hard because it, it, most of this is national yeah. numbers. Yeah. Um, so you're looking at national fertility rates and, um, you know, obviously there's tons of variation mm -hmm. within different groups. Um, though there are some more granular um, statistics, like you can see, for example, that after families immigrate to the United States from other nations, their birth rates plummet, mm -hmm. with the exception of South Koreans, whose birth rates actually go up. After really? They... Okay. Yeah. But, but um, from our, the, our theory... the, the global low, the, the lowest from, yeah, in the world. From like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, it's, where, where could they go, honestly? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, that, so there are some subgroups where we, we understand what the, the birth birth rates are. But for the most part, we just know national birth rates. What we do see basically, though, is a very strong correlation between female educational attainment, poverty, and birth rate, where when you get more prosperity, or by some people's terminology, they would say sort of opting into the modern economic system. So once you see that, um, and you see people earning in some, like in many respects, over $5,000 a year annually. Like this is, you know, yeah, even a small yeah. amount of opting into a modern economic system and sort of living that life. Um, and then once you get women who are educated, who have access to birth control, you see plummeting birth rates um, in the absence of a culture that encourages high birth rates. So you still see some nations like Israel, for example, that have managed to, in the face of prosperity, high female educational attainment, gender equality, um, open-mindedness, you know, plurality, they have a high birth rate. Um, but we would also argue that there's a much stronger cultural imperative to have a high birth rate among the dominating culture in Israel. Mm, because of the existential threat yes. faced by the culture. Yeah. Because that's yeah. true even among secular Israelis, isn't it? So obviously all, exactly, Orthodox yeah, yeah, are going to be driving not... up the birth rate, but it's not solely due to that. Yeah, even even secular Israelis have higher birth rates. Um, but yeah, obviously, like the Orthodox population is is way more like Haredi Jews are having way, way more kids than, you know, your typical secular Jew. But that's still, you know, meaningful. Yeah, it is a bit difficult to disaggregate by um, politics and culture within countries, because as you say, it tends to be expressed as a national number. Um, I know in the UK you can look in a little bit fine-grained detail by looking at particular um, cities. So, for instance, Brighton in the UK, which is famously progressive and kind of the, the gay capital as well of the UK outside of London, has oh. really low, low birth rates. It's like 0.8 or something. It's, it's South Korea mm. levels, um, which suggests that what's going on, even though Britain has 1.9 or something, there's a lot of variation across the country between different subgroups. Um, so, yes. And, and, and I mean, I just look around at my own peer group, which is mostly um, middle class professionals in London, mostly raised in a sort of progressive-ish culture. 
and it's just obvious that so so people are having babies so much later and they're not having very many and obviously the way that this generally gets expressed in in my circles is as well fine because it's just a lifestyle choice among many yeah and if you want to yeah. have kids then cool if you don't want to have kids then cool and, and obviously on a, a sort of on a I think for, for both of us coming from that kind of milieu that 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 makes sense the problem is people don't think of it on a macro level they don't think about what this does to a society in a hundred years or less and what plummeting birth rates are likely to even very soon what effect it's likely to have on a national Ooh, level even already. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad you brought up Brighton and London is, is like hubs of, you know, there, there's a big gay community in both areas. The pro and this is such a good illustration is I, I can share this with you, um, for a link. There's actually an, an a peer reviewed article called differential fertility makes society more conservative on family values. Um, and it shows how, because gay couples are not having as many kids as more conservative couples, there is actually a shift away from support of progressive values over time. Um, they, they say at the end of the abstract, the causal pathways are unclear, but the patterns reshape society. Traditional family conservatism is more prevalent than it would have been if each person had had the same population share as his or her parents. This demographic phenomenon raises the opposition to same-sex marriage and abortion by three to four percentage points. It accounts for 7.9 million of the nation's 54.8 million opponents to same-sex marriage. So, Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, and and yeah. that's now. Yeah, yeah. And that's the crazy thing is like, I think even now, um, it's, it's hard for us to see even the beginnings of the long-term effects because we're still like the, the progressives are still alive. You know, they haven't, they hadn't, they haven't died out yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, sort of once the, the adult population dies, um, we're going to see even more of a cliff as like, there are just more people who are being born with more, inherently conservative tendencies or impulses. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, now I think about it, there's been this polling recently showing, certainly in America and maybe here as well, a drop in general of support for LGBT um, issues. And I assumed, and many people I think reading that data assumed, that it was because of overreach by trans activism had turned people off the whole thing. But maybe actually that's the real cause. It's actually already you're seeing these differential fertility rates affecting the political makeup of the nation yeah um, yeah the thing is like it, this is what why we care about this is it's a very tractable problem i mean it's I, okay i'll say it's it's more difficult right now for gay couples to have kids if they want them because obviously they are dependent on an egg donor on a surrogate these things are prohibitively expensive for most uh, and it's a huge hassle. hassle. It's, a, it's very, very emotionally taxing. Even if you have infinity money, you know, finding the right surrogate for you is really hard. Um, but, you know, we are progressing, depending on what, what you wear, your religious and moral views are toward technology that would make it possible for a gay couple to have a child that is genetically theirs using only their genetic material. Um, so we're not that far um, from this technology being available. And, you know, so like after that point, hopefully it'll become easier. And you know, because also there is a strong pressure to develop artificial wombs, we could say, to help premature 
born babies, which is a big deal. And, you know, maybe it may be possible to have kids without a surrogate in the future as well. And again, there's like a high disgust response to that. There's there's a high, you know, concern around creating um, creating embryos that may not be used, that may be discarded uh, among sort of various groups. I get that. But you know, if you're progressive, you probably don't care about that as much. Um, and it's something that people I think should seriously consider it, you know, having kids is not just a personal indulgence and having kids related to you is not just a personal indulgence, though adoption obviously is amazing too. So the, the project that you and, um, your husband Malcolm are embarked on and in your most recent book is how do you create a culture which is pronatal while also being progressive on issues like this on for instance gay rights on women's equality all of this how do you manage to meld together what has i think historically never been melded together is that fair to say that we've never really seen a highly fertile culture that is um pro all of these modern things yeah i guess you could say i mean it's hard to say like i i would say i often associate modernity and culture with things like gender equality um, or feminism, however you want to call it. Um, though I would say that many traditional cultures are more gender egalitarian than even super progressive culture now, just in really different ways where mm. like, it's not a big deal for people and people just do what they're good at. And it doesn't matter what you're born as. It doesn't matter. Like, whatever, you're good at this, you do this. But it's also like, on average, you're probably going to do all the female things and I'm going to do all the male things and that's okay. You know, so I feel like now in many ways, um, we have more misinterest and misogynist culture, even in progressive spheres than we used to. But yes, generally speaking, we haven't seen a post-prosperity, post-industrial revolution, um, technophilic and progressive culture maintain a high birth rate. And there are so many reasons behind that, but absolutely, that's what our, our book is about, is how can you how can you create a culture that is that or even if you have, let's say, a super conservative culture, I think a lot of families out there are really concerned about their kids going to public school, going to college, and then losing their culture, having it stripped out of them by mainstream culture. I think to a great extent to opt into modern society, you have to opt into mainstream culture. And we call it in the book a sterilizing meme. I mean, like sort of the rate at which you have kids plummets after you opt into it and that is sterilizing you know no one's stealing you away or you know engaging in surgical procedures but the the result is the same hmm. maiden mother matriarch is brought to you by keeper the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and masculine feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. 
The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So find your Keeper at Keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R.ai. Yes, things like going to university, things like just, yes, just just having access to this these political ideas seems to dissuade people from having children. Um, yes. Which, I mean, along with all the other material stuff, but I think there tends to be maybe a bit of an overemphasis, certainly in the UK, on the effect of things like house prices, for instance, on lowering fertility. And clearly, yes, there is an economic component to people's decision-making in this regard. And maybe some people would have a third child if... They could afford a larger house and so on. But it seems to me that people understate the um, the cultural stuff, including religious in particular, because we know that religious people tend to have more children and just how often you go to church predicts how many children you have and so on. So there's, it seems like there is so much feeding into this, um, which is quite hard for government to touch in terms yes. of policy. Um, it's been done. Yeah. Um, wasn't it Hungary that had the the patriarch of the church baptize every child like above a certain number that a family had? And that was like actually one of the few pronatalist policies that was really effective. Interesting. Like, I don't think that would can... work in the UK, though, if everyone got baptized. Yeah, by the yeah well, because country. it's not a, a theocracy, right? Like yeah. people don't, that's not what is valued as much. But when yes. you can use religion like that, yes. oh my gosh, it's so much more. Like money has not been very effective. Look at the nations that provide free Childcare. Look at the nations that provide. I mean, my gosh, in the UK, you can get support for IVF. That's insane from like government health. I mean, it, I'm sure it's not like perfect or easy or like the yeah. best possible care. That but still, it is still like, available though. Yes. Yeah. That's huge. I mean, I slept on a mattress on the floor of a studio apartment for a year just to do IVF. You know, all of our income went to that. Like the idea mm. that the government support. So, you know, Money isn't isn't it. Um, and actually, when we think about like the classic family who has a lot of kids, it's it's a poor family, you know, uh, we're, we're certain, we often see them as being poor. I don't I also have never seen um, families who value having kids culturally saying, oh, well, we just we just can't have you know anymore. We can't afford to have anymore. It's too expensive. Um, there's something very there's a couple things going on, obviously, but one I think is that modern society and culture has made it very financially unsustainable to have kids because we treat each child almost like we treat a geriatric adult. Like they, they need constant care. They have to have, you know, sort of supervised, special premium, everything. I mean, even wealthy families in the past, like they would teach their own kids in their home. Their kids would just kind of hang around their home and like run out in a field if they needed to play. They were not being sent to expensive schools or summer camps. They didn't have all the latest products. They got hand-me-downs or whatever. You know, maybe they had a tutor who came in, but this was probably someone who was 
mostly getting room and board at the house, you know, and like getting somewhere nice to stay for a while. You know, this was even for wealthy families, having kids was very financially sustainable. They were not spending anywhere close to the percentage of disposable income that families are spending on children now. I mean, it's 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 insane to me how much of a cost burden kids are when you raise them the way that people sort of expect to raise kids now. Um, so I think that's one really big factor. Um, it's, it's, it's not, again, so it's not that having kids is expensive or having houses is expensive. Our entire idea of how to raise kids and what kids need or deserve is warped. Do you think it's partly, so the big factor in, in, in most of those historical families is the reason it's possible to homeschool them and to allow them to hang out around the house and stuff is because you normally have the mother at home. I guess that's the really big expensive thing now is to not have two incomes. That's the big hit that, that couples face. I would say yes and no. And this is actually where I get even more excited um, is we feel like the nuclear family, which is how we sort of see traditional families as being where one partner is the breadwinner and goes out and earns all the money. The other partner stays at home, educates the kids, takes care of the household. Both are obviously very demanding careers. Um, we think that that's honestly an aberration that mm -hmm. kind of saw its height at the 1950s. And we all kind of anchored to it as the natural way, mm -hmm. because that was also this golden age of television media where we sort of like, for the first time, like culturally imprinted on what a family looks like collectively, which is also super interesting is like a dynamic. Um, but what we think really a, a family has been throughout most of human history is what's more commonly described as the corporate family, which is, yes, a mother and a father and kids, but often like an extended family as well. Sometimes a few employees like working on the farm who mm -hmm. also participate in family activities. You know, they're, at all, they're at all the meals. They help out with things or, you know, maybe a... Um, uh, an aunt or a niece or nephew, you know, so there's this large sort of cluster of people and they're all working together on something. Maybe it's a brewery or a bakery or a farm or a tannery. And it, the husband and the wife, they both work um, and they both raise the kids. And sometimes the kids are apprenticing in the shop and sometimes the kids are helping around the house or sometimes, you know, the father's taking care of a kid or the mother's taking care of the kid. Um, everyone is involved in breadwinning, including the children. Everyone is involved in caring for each other, including the children. Um, and that's a much more sustainable system. And actually what makes me excited is with the death of the lifelong corporate job, I think we're really we're seeing how unsustainable it is now for someone to be a sole breadwinner. One, because jobs just don't last that long. Like a family is putting itself at huge risk if only one person is making all the money because, you know, who knows how that's going to work out. I think more people are going back to these cottage industries that families used to have where they're piecing a lot of little things together. They're being very collaborative and ingenious in the way that they do things. Um, we're even seeing this with the business that, that we run is our day job, um, where families are sort of working together. We've actually had like people hire relatives to work in their department. Um, and I think that is a much more sustainable model, you know, because then you start bringing in your kids, your kids are with you, your kids are with you at home as you're working, you have flexibility. Um, and that is, that is more tenable, it is more feasible. A problem that we see that we would love to counteract is that there is no, evoked set for that. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know to aspire to it. We don't know that it's an option. You don't um, see it and on so, TV. 
Yeah. And so we just, we, we would never think to do it. You know, it's kind of the same issue of like, you know, a lot of girls don't go into STEM because, you know, who's, who's going to, who do you aspire to, you know, who, who looks like that in media, you know, you want to be a princess because there's princesses in media, whatever. Uh, I know that's kind of changing now, but like you get the gist. Um, so I think more examples need to be shown for that. Um, and more examples of, of families who have a lot of kids and are happy with them instead of beleaguered parents. I mean, the best example we can think of a loving family that has um, two to three kids, depending on what part of the universe you're looking at is the Adams family. But like, <laughs> yes, they're freaks, you know, <laughs> you know, they're framed yes. as like, you know, it, which is, is kind of ironic. Yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. Yes. I mean, I suppose the real challenge to having the kind of the corporate family, as you say, where people are not just having strong extended kin networks, but also having um, economic activity all based within the household and shared within the household is that makes complete sense if you're artisans if you are farmers not so much if you work in corporate finance or whatever right there are just the way that the economy has has changed over time has meant that there are fewer such roles available but then also the economy keeps changing I guess so it may be in the future that that does become um, more of a model yeah, can you really imagine corporate finance being around like human run, you know, in the face of what's happening with AI? That's that's the other thing is there's this huge yeah. pressure point. I think we're going to see a complete change in what it means to work and live. And uh, that that opens. I mean, it's it's terrifying, but it opens opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you are still, nevertheless, though, given your advocacy work, very worried about the birth rate issue. Yes. Um, yes. So the, 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 probably the strongest argument um, or the most common argument that you will hear against your position is what about the environment? Yes. What is your, what is your response to that? So there are a couple of ways to look at this, right? So what we, what we see and what we're trying to prevent is a, something close to a cultural monoculture in the future. So the problem is, yeah, okay, birth rates are dropping in developed countries. Okay, we can all kind of agree on that. Um, and eventually they will drop and drop and drop. And many cultures as a result of that will go extinct eventually. Obviously, like they'll keep converting people. We have sort of the rhino problem as we discussed it, right? Mm -hmm. So then, you know, eventually some cultures will no longer be able to grow through conversion. And like the Shakers who primarily converted through orphanages, they got extinct because, you know, they didn't have sex. They mm -hmm. got extinct after the state started taking that on. So, you know, eventually cultures um, who depend on conversion for new members are going to run out of their source. They're going to disappear. Okay, that's fine. But what's going to remain? A bunch of cultures who manage to maintain high birth rates. So what we will likely see is a big plummet in birth rates, and then we're going to see a spike, mm -hmm. you know, more and more, perhaps the because the... From the survivors, the yeah. survivors who, given certain trends that are at play, I mean, what we see right now is the big correlatory factors with high birth rates are female disempowerment and poverty, which not great. And yeah. like, as far as we're concerned, like we're really, really, really freaking worried about that. It's like, it's, um, you know, a lot of people use like feminism as the grounds for not having kids because, you know, you have to sort of give up a lot of independence to have kids, but feminism depends on people who are feminist having kids. Yeah. Um, so anyway, back to environmentalists though, because you know, the environment, yes, it matters. So if you really care about the environment, you would probably want to 
see, you know, instead of the population plummeting and then spiking again, is the population leveling off in a sustainable fashion. Mm -hmm. And very gradually. Because of course, environmentalists, you know, they understand, you know, ecosystems, right? There's S curves and there's J curves, which is something you commonly see with populations and ecosystems. And S curve is what you expect to see with like a good, you know, like some kind of nice pond algae where sometimes there's there's a little more of it, then it goes back down, then it goes back up. But like the bad pond algae has what's called the J curve where it goes way, 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 way up until everything in the pond dies because there's way too much algae, then it plummets because everything in the pond is dead. so, you know, what we want to see is that sort of sustainable, like, okay, leveling off of population. But in order for that to happen, we think you need to see the same plurality or more of what we're seeing now so that as populations sort of lift everyone up and hopefully lift, you know, even impoverished high birth rate cultures up to not just sustainable birth rates. And by sustainable, I mean, not way too many people, but also not to the point of extinction, then we can all kind of coexist at reasonable numbers going forward. So, you know, we're not advocates for forever growing population. Um, We are advocates for sustainable levels, but we don't think that you get to that by just saying, well, I hope people just stop having kids. Also, we should keep in mind that we're getting very, very good uh, with conservation, with technology that helps to reduce the human's carbon footprint. Um, on the planet, that in, you know, a couple of generations, the net contribution of an additional human to the overall like greenhouse gas footprint of the world may be fairly trivial. Um, So, you know, just to say, well, you can't, you know, humans are too wasteful is not necessarily the right or accurate thing to do. And of course, there are many things that we can choose to do with our lives, Um, you know, not eat meat, live in a city, you know, not have a car that would, you know, reduce our impact. So those are some, some easier refutations. And of course, the final argument that I made earlier, sort of the psychographic profile of someone who cares about the environment will be systematically bred out of the population if these people choose to not have kids. Yeah. Like if you are someone who's super anxious about climate change, um, there's a, there's a a fairly good chance that your children are going to be the sort of people who might genuinely contribute to whatever the development of new types of energy or whatever is it is we need. Are you familiar with this um, three-part classification system for environmentalists, the light greens, the dark greens, and the bright greens? No, 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 it's okay, tell me. So light greens are people who just kind of want to nibble around the edges, who are quite conservative about it, who want to do sort of slight reductions but not radical in order to reduce our impact on the planet the dark greens are the extinction rebellion types who think that our entire way of life is completely inimical to um the climate and want to overhaul capitalism and so on Uh -uh. and the bright greens are the people who want to who think technology is the answer Uh. so elon musk is a bright green for instance. Uh, uh, and I think maybe you are a bright green. And I think I'm a bright green. I think I just think that yeah. the idea of sort of crashing the population, even aside from all of the, the, the concerns that you raise, which are completely legitimate. One, if you really think that, that, you know, climate catastrophe is going to hit us in a century, that's actually not quick enough. Even if we all went to South Korean fertility levels, you wouldn't drop the population quickly enough to actually... When we saw with the pandemic, like we got down to like terminal levels of emissions right you know everything had stopped we were all shut in our houses we're losing our minds 
And yet still we weren't at the levels that were necessary no. per various people's goals. And we're just like, oh, look at this. We can't, we can shut down the world and it's still not enough. Yeah, yeah. Like to, we have to, to take other measures. To still be using fossil fuels, you need, the, you need the population to be so much lower than it is now. So barring some yeah. kind of completely catastrophic event, lower birth rates is not going to get us there, which means mm-hmm. that the only thing to do is to have better tech. And the way to get better tech is through people. Yeah, I would say, well, better tech and better immigration policy. I think something that's super underrated in in climate change is, listen, like we have to just plan for a lot of this. It's going to happen regardless, even if like we somehow like have like half the population, you know, it's still going to be an issue. So how do we set up international treaties that allow for the migration of people who are going to have to leave their nations? because of climate change, because it gets too hot, um, because rolling blackouts could cause, you know, millions of people to die because they overheat and they can't get air conditioning, all this sort of stuff. I would prefer for us to be planning around instead of, you know, arguing over whether we're using plastic straws. <laughs> so, Mm-mm. Yeah, plastic <sighs> straws is a classic light green concern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so in terms of policy, what if if I could ask you to choose maybe one policy that you think would be the most effective in encouraging birth rates to go in the direction that we want? What do you in in let's say in America? What would you say would be your top on your laundry list? Top policy, if I can just say it, like a blanket policy of removing regulation on parents. Okay. Take your foot off the neck of parents. That means. Don't call CPS on parents if you see their kid walking two blocks home from school by themselves. Um, Don't force parents to send their children to public school because maybe public school is giving them sterilizing memes. It's removing, you know, populations from your nation uh, and and removing taxpayers. Like, so there's actually, um, I don't know if you've read um, Zvi's Substack essay called Car Seats is Contraception. I have. We can link, yeah. we can link to it in the bio Please. as well. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> I, that, we're just like, that, that sums it up. Because um, it's, we've looked at all these very ineffective policies when it comes to giving people money, paying for childcare, paying for all these things, you know, because people's first intuition is always just, you know, oh, well, let's throw money at the problem. That's going to solve it. Um, but there's actually just so much that you can do to make life easier for parents as it is. And this comes back to my tedious rant about child rearing now being totally unsustainable. It's not just that we've normalized to insane levels of expenditures and weird neuroticism around raising kids. It's that the government is imposing upon families a bunch of rules that are totally unsustainable. I mean, even when it comes, there's some states in the United States that are trying to require like graduate level qualifications, like education for, for childcare workers, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's, that's raising the cost of daycare and which is insane. I mean, what we pay for daycare is so much of our disposable income. Um, so it's not, it doesn't have to be that hard. Just, just take your foot off the neck of parents, please. Do we have any idea? I know that the, 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 um, the car seat, um, subset piece tries to, to put some numbers on it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any guess about how, how much all of those regulations are likely to be suppressing fertility? 
Oh gosh, it's hard to say because mm. we haven't seen a nation like we haven't yet to experience a natural experiment in which some state or region has chosen to lift those regulations. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we're trying to do through pronatalist.org, our advocacy um, nonprofit on this, is literally to partner with states, to partner with nations to make that happen. Because imagine, I mean, one, a nation would really benefit from things like that. Um, but then two, the the difference it could possibly make and that data would be so useful uh so certainly stay posted on that but yeah currently there isn't much much data mm, mm. i mean s s sometimes throwing money at things might help i would imagine i like money money's good yeah i mean i'm not gonna say no yes. like i would love i would love free child care would make such a big difference for us you know i would i would love for for maternal um, care in, in hospitals for birth and for C-sections was not so prohibitively expensive. My, it's my, a crazy thing in America, the fact that you have to pay to give birth. Because in the UK, it's, it's completely free, yeah. Oh, oh, gosh. When I looked at what my insurance, I mean, we paid out of pocket a ton. But on top of this, when we looked at what our insurance company paid for our second son, who was born premature, it was over a $100,000. Um, yeah. Like we could have bought a house with what was spent on. And I mean, that the life-saving care that our son got in the NICU was worth every penny. You know, <laughs> like we would never you know, question that. But yeah, it's, it, this is unsustainable. I would, so yeah, money and money does help. So I'm not saying that the interventions that governments have tried um, when attempting to raise their birth rates haven't made a difference. The problem is that they've not made enough of a difference. You know, they're, they're bringing it up a few percentage points when before it was dropping, like, so maybe like 1.5 percentage points up instead of dropping two percentage points every year. Now that helps. And, and, you know, when it comes to the other elements of demographic collapse that we really, really need to worry for, that we need to create a soft landing for instead of a hard landing, can be ameliorated by, an, instead of, you know, a cliff, more like a, you know, subtle slope down. So um, these interventions are helpful, but it's still, you know, to expend as much as 1% of your GDP on, you know, things related to birth rates, as, as some nations have, and to see so little effect is still worrying. But again, you know, our entire economic system, our pension funds, our city infrastructure, like the tax support for them, that's all predicated on growing populations. So yeah, to a certain extent, while we try to plan and create better systems that can handle lower populations that don't need a pyramid scheme to work, maybe it's enough to just slow things down, but it's still... Not enough. But I mean, what are you thinking? What would be ideal in terms of expenditures? Um, I think we need to make it so that um, there's no financial penalty for having children. Because currently, mm. plenty of people quite rationally will look at the amount of, you know, not just the amount of free time and, 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 and freedom they have without children but also it's just the fact that having children is probably the dumbest financial decision you can make at least in the short term <laughs> I speak from experience um and so there probably would be I mean it would be quite radical but probably what the state would need to do in order to even out that effect would be to heavily tax people who don't have children and then give enormous tax breaks to people who do Ooh. now you know I think actually the USSR may have tried that and it was one of the <laughs> not only... sure if that's a good sell <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the problem. Is is it? But but it was, and we we cover this. It was one of the the few and only actually effective, interesting um, interventions to tax people who didn't have kids. Um, 
but again, like no politicians. (laughs) You're not like, yeah, Yeah. like, oh, I want to run for office someday. You know, like, so does my husband. Like we want to, but no one's going to get elected on that. So we just like sort of threw it out. We're like, well, that's never going to happen. So I guess we, I mean, that's why we like the idea of lifting, um, lifting regulation because that can lead to fewer governmental costs, lighter tax burdens um, that than than you would expect. But uh, no, I love that. I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> if we can get like, if we can just some kind of weird psyops campaign where like we, you know, mind control all politicians to pass this, like, sign me up, I will do it. <laughs> like, I will take the hit for it. I don't care. But yeah, alas, you can probably it's easier to sell it as tax breaks for parents. Because actually, we do already, particularly in the UK, we actually give parents loads of free stuff, you know, free education. We have some free preschool childcare. We have, yeah, we have child benefit for, we've had child benefit for a long time. It's not that much money, but, you know, it all adds up. Um, Chalice. Yeah. (laughs) So framing it as a perk for parents would be much easier than calling it a tax on the childless. I don't think a tax on the childless is going to win very many votes but but you know that is basically the issue that completely the way that it used to be is that having children was a good thing to do economically because particularly if you're in a kind of agricultural household the corporate household as you described children can help you around the farm the upfront costs are minimal you can kind of quite easily fold them into your daily family routine in a way that's not too disruptive whereas now the upfront costs are enormous and they completely disrupt your life and your ability to earn money and it's only down the track that you have that payoff. I mean, an argument that I would make to people who are on the fence right now about having children and are living in our dysfunctional kind of Western system where it is painfully expensive and inconvenient to have children is that, as you say, the welfare state is a pyramid scheme. I think it's very likely to collapse Certainly, I mean, in the UK, we obviously have socialised healthcare. We have a much larger welfare state than you, than you do. It's not, fun, it's, it's not sustainable right now at all. The likelihood is that by the time I reach old age, I'm not going to be able to call on my state pension and my socialised healthcare system. I'm going to have to depend on my children in one form or another. Oh my gosh, this is where we're going. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. I mean, t- the, yeah, t- describe what I had. Like, your children are your retirement plan. Yeah. The government is not going to be there for you, Fred. Yeah, 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 it's true. So describe what a hard landing looks like. Yeah, I mean, that that is a hard landing. So yeah. a hard landing, and you can look at nations like Japan to see what it looks like. You know, a hard landing is the stock market stops growing. Mm-hmm. You know, your retirement savings don't grow. Um, you know, there, there are going to be very, very few children running around and you will not have anyone to care for you in your old age. There will be even like very few people that will come to take care of you in a hospital. You know, they're going to use their modern robots to come, you know, change your adult diapers mm-hmm. because they... Uh, there isn't going to be anyone. But yeah, so city infrastructure is also going to start to crumble. So you can look at cities like Detroit, um, which obviously received a population exodus for different reasons, right? The auto industry left Detroit, leading to a lot of people leaving because there weren't jobs anymore. But what happens then is you see a lot of um, people, I guess, normally, because housing is such an expensive problem. Oh, well, great. Housing will be cheap. It will be affordable. It's going to be great. There's going to be all this space. I can have a big penthouse apartment. But what really ends up happening, and you, you can see pictures of this, if you look at pictures of abandoned neighborhoods in Detroit, 
very, very quickly, neighborhoods become abandoned, overrun by wild dogs. The, the infrastructure stops working, buildings crumble, roads crumble. Um, you basically see these post-apocalyptic looking cities that just don't work anymore. And I think, you know, the UK is in a slightly better position for this because I think there are many, many very historical villages that were built to last. But in the United States, there were many cities that were built by developers um, and it was all part of an investment scheme where like a, a a company basically said, okay, I will create your plumbing system. I will create your roads. We're going to sell you a bunch of houses. And like sort of now there's a new city. Aha. But then the whole tax base of the city is set up in a way where they aren't really ready or, or financially able to replace this infrastructure when it needs to be repaired or overhauled or replaced. So suddenly the sewer system stops working. The electricity system stops working. A lot of things just cease to function. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really big deal. And of course, when you look at just cities pensions funds, um, you know, these are for, for teachers unions, for fire, firemen, policemen, um, huger portions of the tax base of a city go toward paying for pension funds because they're obligated to. So this isn't just that, oh no, pension funds are going to be at risk. I mean, for a long time, cities are going to keep paying those pension funds. They're going to honor them because that's a really big deal and it's a genuine legal commitment too. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen? Well, taxes are going to go up. There's going to be an even further exodus from those cities because no one can afford to live there anymore. Um, and then it's sort of this spiraling problem and all sorts of other services no longer get paid for. You know, no one can pay for a police service now because all the money is going to a pension fund and there's no one to pay for it. So all these things from education to, you know, cleaning the city to gardens and parks, suddenly cities can't afford that anymore because all they're paying for are bloated pension funds for services that already took place. So essentially it's like, um, you know, these cities uh, and so many elements of our system, we've all taken out loans based on population growth. And then those loans are going to become due and we won't have income anymore to support it, income being people. Um, but, you know, honestly, I think the sell to, to parents, to would-be parents, isn't that because it's it's too logical, right? You know, it's too ideological. And, and I think, you know, aside from those who would, you know, sort of politically change their their sexual affiliation um, because they, you know, hate men so much or something, right? Like, I think a lot of people aren't going to have kids because they only because they ideologically want to, because they know it's the correct thing. In fact, even if, let's say that you don't want to have kids, but you ideologically support it, well then be a really good uncle, you know, help your, your brother and sister-in-law who really want to have kids, have more kids by like, paying for the kids summer camp or something, you know, like there are many ways where people who don't want to have kids themselves, but want to support population growth can do that just by making it easier for those who want to have kids to have kids. Um, so I would just say that, but in terms of, I think the cultural message here and, and what we should be selling to people about having kids is totally underrated. And it's, it's this, that as a culture, we're sort of stuck in a phase in which we're idolizing the kind of life that a teen wants. What is that? For men, it's I'm traveling, I'm adventuring, I'm sought after by many women. Um, I'm, I have, you know, tons of sexual partners. My body is ripped. You know, I look super hot with my shirt off. Like that's the male ideal. And we see this all over the place. And we especially see this, you know, with, with figures like Andrew Tate being one of the most popular um, like, I guess, leading figures, social media figures among teen males, mm -hmm. which is insane. Um, and then, you know, for women, it's, it's being desired. It's being beautiful. It's looking young. You know, it's, it's, it's being 
this glamorous, beautiful figure. Um, and it's certainly not being apparent. But what we what we realized, um, especially after having kids, and, and I, I wonder if, if you can kind of relate to this, is after you have kids, it's kind of like you go through what we call, and this is not a great phrase, but adult puberty, where you sort or of like... matrescence, have you heard that term? I've never heard that term, but it's yeah. much more pretty. <laughs> matrescence? Um, where and you, patrescence, you... I suppose. Oh, patrescence. Yeah. My God. Okay, good. <laughs> much better than adult puberty. Matrescence <laughs> and patrescence, where... You, you discover this deep, deep fulfillment in time with your children and, and watching them play, hearing the sound of their footfalls around the house. I mean, there's, there is zero resentment on my part for losing a night of sleep because one of my kids is sick or needing to pick them up from daycare, needing to make them dinner or, you know, having one of them wipe their snotty hand on my clothes once again. Like I've never, ever felt resentment for that. I've never looked back to my life before and thought, I miss that. There's a deep fulfillment from it. And I also think that this shows up in how hollow the adolescent ideal lifestyle feels as you get older. And I think a lot of people are intuitively feeling that hedonic treadmill problem where they're still traveling internationally. They're gorgeous. They're ripped. You know, they take care of their body. And a lot of people like them. They're dating a ton. And it just doesn't have that same feeling of fulfillment that it used to be. Uh, like it doesn't feel the same way anymore. It's not very satisfying. And that's because they've reached a level in their human life cycle where that doesn't work anymore. Just like how when you're a kid, you really like to pretend it's so fun. There's every, it's everything's imagination. It's you're playing all these games and then you become a teenager and suddenly you're very interested in different things. We think the same thing happens when it comes to sources of derived happiness as you're an adult, which is to say that a whole different set of things will make you happy. And that, that old teenage set of things that would make you happy doesn't really make you happy anymore. What's the problem though with our modern culture is we don't realize there's a transition. We, there, there are people who are now in their sixties who think that the, the teenage lifestyle is still the ideal and they're chasing after that. Um, and what, what my husband Malcolm pointed out the other day is that have you seen Blippy? Like the kid, like the, there's this YouTube persona named Blippy that I, I he's a, yet. He's he's spread sure like cocoa melon future. through the through the parenting world. It is um he's he's like the herpes of the parenting world in the United <laughs> States. You can't get rid of him. Um, but he's you know he's uh he's just like any like kid like the Wiggles or something. You know like there are these these adults who appeal to children and you know they're always like like dancing around and yeah. like oh my god and like over you know enunciating yes. everything like where's this and I can't believe this. So that Blippy is the ideal adult. Yes. to like toddler children right yes. it's like i want to be like that man like i can't wait to be like blippy and like drive cars and dance around it as an adult because i can do whatever i want the same thing happens with people like andrew tate and teens it's like oh you know i want yes. to be andrew tate i want to like you know sleep with all these women and be so tough and fight people and punch and have muscles um but he's just as ridiculous as blippy is mm. You know, th that is just as ridiculous as of an aspirational figure once you become an adult. It's like an adult wanting to be like Blippi. That is, that is not what we should be going for. Um, and I think that's the bigger problem is, is that we're, we're not able to get over that cultural hang up. There's sort of this collective lie that's being told to us that our ideal should be Andrew Tate or, you know, insert, um, attractive, you know, sexually idolized female figure here. Um, and instead, 
there's actually this entire hidden secret society of parents who are living deeply fulfilling lives um, that you you would never really be able to understand, unfortunately, until you have kids. Mm. Um, and I, I remember what it was like to be on the other side of that. And I remember being pregnant with our first son and just telling my husband, Malcolm, like, you know, you're going to have to pull all your weight on this. Cause I, I don't think I'll love our son. Like, I, I just don't think I'm going to be into this. I'm not like, I'm not into, I don't like kids. I hate kids. I hate babies. I don't want anyone to like hand one to me. Like, Ooh, like, mm. I don't, I don't want this at all. Like, I mean, our agreement was I would have infinite kids. Cause he really wants kids as long as I don't have to raise them. Like that was the, that was the only way he was able to convince me to do it. Now I have kids. I, I can't wait to get pregnant again. We're going to try again this summer because I just had our, our our latest child in October. Like, we're just like, mm, 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 like, go, go, go fast. Um, but I, you can't know it until you experience that. And then you realize, oh, wow. I know so many women who have that, that we're never, yeah. I've always had baby fever. I've always been really into babies, but I have lots of uh. friends who were just not that into babies and weren't that sure about having kids and then ended up doing it anyway and then we're like yeah. I really like my baby <laughs> my yeah. baby's amazing yeah. yeah everyone else is like mm, but like your kid yeah well because it is different and it's amazing you look at your own child you look into your own child and they have the same eyes as you and there's just nothing yeah. like it yeah yeah the expression I've used which I uh, I wonder if this resonates with you is parenting is all joy and no fun <laughs> <laughs> because yeah it's really tiring and yeah. uh, and restricts your leisure time in all sorts of ways but also just the the depth of joy is unparalleled and there's nothing else like it yeah there's a there's a very very deep contentment yeah like hedonic pleasure definitely takes a hit mm. um but also like how satisfying is that like how many luxurious international trips do we need to go on you know how many dinners out at restaurants do you mm. need to go on like I also feel like there's, you can kind of get through a certain phase where like, you've done it enough times, you're getting diminishing marginal returns, let's try something new. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, you know, there are other phases in life. I think when you get to older adulthood, beyond where you and I are now, I think then mentorship um, and sort of the more like tribal elder roles start to become more satisfying where you're helping the young. That looks yeah. lush. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm so excited. You get excited. all the joy of looking at a child that has your your eyes. Yeah. without having to lose sleep <laughs> i know and then you're like, you like send them home after spoiling them rotten and they're like yeah. on a sugar hot oh yeah i find no, I it really wait. sad when i hear about families where which have where, where people have had you know three children or four children even and have maybe one grandchild or something yeah. like this amazing degree of fertility shred within families yeah no that and that's that is such a thing and yeah. I, I mean that's the other thing that we talk about in our culture book is it is this is about creating what we call intergenerationally durable cultures. Mm -hmm. It's not just, do you have a culture that is strong that imparts fitness, but are you also giving such a great childhood experience to your children that they choose to one, maintain that culture and two, have kids who three, they raise in that culture. And that is, I think most cultures today, and I'm talking, you know, hardline religious cultures or like super progressive loose cultures, they're all in the face of, we'll say, globalism, the modern economy, and like the tech world, sort of social media collectively. They're not surviving it. We need to we need to prepare for that. I mean, we only see like full out Amish people, sort of close to where we live out in Pennsylvania, who we call like air gapped. Um, they're just like totally off the grid. 
they're safe, but you know, other groups, we just don't see it working out without intervention, we'll say. Mm. Um, I want to talk more about your 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 personal setup and personal philosophy within your family in the extended part of the episode. But for but for anyone watching who is wondering how they can, um, you know, stop their own genetic line going extinct, how they can encourage kind of pro family views within their household, what's 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 one top tip you would give for trying to um, promote that intergenerational stability? Oh, that's a good question. It doesn't have to be just one. I would one, say, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the keys things seem to be create a cohesive, start just with your family, a cohesive family culture that in some way imparts both mental fitness, like you give your, your children tools for good mental health and you have good mental health hygiene, um, but also where parenting and child rearing is seen as something beautiful and celebrated. Um, and a lot of that I think shows up in learning how to have fun as a parent. You know, if you, if you see your parents as a kid growing up struggling and resenting parenthood and really not having a good time, you're probably not going to want to have kids yourself. Um, so if you can adapt your inherited culture, which you want to keep, or a family culture, which you want to create, to make parenthood cool and fun and, and idolized and to show that that's something that's respected, uh, I think that's a, a really good way. But of course, you know, the second tip is read the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, <laughs> which is, it's a tome of a book. There's a lot there. Um, and if anyone emails us at hello at pragmatist.guide, uh, we will send them a free copy or a free audiobook. We're not asking anyone to buy anything. Um, we actually just really, really care about this and are really, really nervous and worried about, especially about cultures going extinct. Because if we don't see a pluralistic future, if we don't see a diverse future, humanity is not going to be able to tackle the problems that hit us. So Simone, that's a great segue. Where can people find more of your work and Malcolm's work online? Uh, you can search on Amazon for The Pragmatist's Guide to Life, Relationships, Sexuality, Governance, or Crafting Religion. That's our whole series so far. Um, and you can read more about our books at pragmatist.guide or visit pronatalist.org to learn more about our pronatalist advocacy and get involved. Awesome. Thank you so much. So for, um, for free subscribers, I'm going to wrap up right now. For paid subscribers... Um, see you in a moment for um, the extended part of the episode. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes and you can also access our chat community you can also support the show by subscribing on youtube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on apple podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try please also spread the word tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it to give it a shot um the word of mouth effect is really valuable so we'd really appreciate it thank you so much everyone for listening watching and supporting what we're doing <laughs>